I'd like to speak or reflect this afternoon on what I would call the radiant heart. In the very last uh, teaching that he gave, the Buddha invited his followers, this was in the time before his death, invited his followers to to continue in their practice, to follow the teachings and the guidelines he had been giving them throughout his life. And he also said to them, and I don't think this occurs at any other place, although it may have done, but certainly very well recorded, he said something which is, although as with translations there's different takes on it, is translated by many at least as, be a lamp unto yourself. And this is, in some ways, his last instruction to us if we seek to follow his teaching and practice. Be a lamp unto yourself. I think there's something quite beautiful and profound in this invitation. It's not simply, you know, to be self-reliant, although there is some element of it in the, the common usage of that phrase that we are not relying on something outside of or external, which is a very important pointer within that phrase. But equally what a a lamp itself is or refers to is a it's a something we use to transform matter, particularly fuel, into light in a way that's useful, into warmth in a way that's useful. That's what a lamp does. It transforms solid or liquid matter into light and warmth, into illumination. And this use of this phrase, for me, points to the primary and, we could say, fundamental or innate qualities of the awakened mind that we seek to realize in our practice. The qualities that we could describe as awareness. The source of and the expression of real intelligence or wisdom, we could say, the application of awareness is wisdom, is genuine intelligence, not the intellectual intelligence we sometimes seek to rely upon. It's the first of the, what I would say, innate qualities of the awakened mind. And the, the second, although there are many ways we could, many qualities we could list, but in terms of what's primary, first there's awareness, and equally primary, equally first, we could say, or I'm choosing to say, is love. And love that shows itself as kindness, as compassion, as the. when that quality is applied, when it's engaged, when it is released from the limitations of our conditioning, then love, as an innate quality of the awakened mind, expresses itself as 
as kindness and compassion. And to understand these qualities as innate, as natural, is to my mind important, crucially important in Dharma practice. That we don't have the sense that we're trying to create something or make something or construct something or even get to somewhere else where that something is. Understanding that these qualities are innate, natural, inherent. What we then can recognize and see is that they are obscured. If they're innate, but we're not in conscious contact with them, or not all of the time, then they are obscured. And our practice is to see through the obscuration, to dissolve or release the patterns and habits of mind and action that lead to that obscuration and thereby to reveal that which is innate, already here. These qualities that we could, and with language we have to use it in this context, so we could equally perhaps choose to use other words, but what I'm using here are the words of awareness and love as representations or expressions of qualities that are inherent. It's not trying to give them some inherent existence in themselves, which they don't really have in the normal usage of our language. But nonetheless, they are something we can recognize. They are something that is, or when, that are when recognized, when not obscured, they are both immediate and present, and they are also boundless, they are without limit. They are not contained or defined in any way. They are beyond limitation. And however we might hear that, the experience for most of us, much of the time, is that our contact with or our experience of these qualities or capacities that we all know to a certain degree that no one of us is a stranger to but that we experience them as limited or as often lost as in not something we have access to or contact with as fully or as deeply as we might wish or in as, as a sustained way as we might imagine or sense as possible for us. And so we can also imagine or conceive that we have somehow lost these qualities or capacities. And however we conceive or describe the situation to ourselves, the experience of love and awareness as something which we have only limited or occasional contact with, leaves us inevitably looking for something to take hold of, 
something to grasp onto. That the absence of contact with these qualities, and these qualities give rise to many more, so there might be other qualities you think of that don't immediately seem to be covered by the awareness and love. And I'm not going to attempt to speak about all the different qualities of the awakened mind. But uh, so far as we're not in contact with awareness, we're not in contact with love, we're not present and we're not open. The mind is not clear and the heart is not alive and open for contact. There's a profound dissatisfaction. There's a profound sense of lack, of limitation. And it is painful to us, immensely so. More deeply so than the surface unpleasant contact of difficult experience that we know through our mind, our heart and our body. And as a result we are driven to seek some resolution of that unsatisfactoriness, that dissatisfaction, that sense of lack or loss. And the way we enact that is through our grasping towards and and through our resisting or fighting against our life and our experience. And the very process of grasping hold of or resisting, imagining that something we have to get or keep will resolve that dissatisfaction or something we have to get rid of or avoid will somehow release us from that dissatisfaction, that that very process which we engage in often unconsciously in order to resolve that deep suffering, in fact, amplifies and solidifies that suffering. The process of grasping and resisting our experience, grasping and resisting life, takes us further away from the immediate contact with and the recognition of that which is the very nature of the awakened heart and mind. The very nature of what is both innate and inherent in experience and is our potential to to realize, to understand, to live in a conscious and ongoing relationship with and for our life to be a conscious and ongoing expression of. And so practice then comes from this understanding that that which we seek for is innate, is inherent, is not to be fabricated or constructed by our efforts in practice. Because anything that's fabricated or constructed will inevitably be deconstructed, will fall apart, will be lost. So understanding this, that we're not making something happen here, it doesn't mean that, or we're not producing something here, it doesn't mean that there's an absence of 
engagement. It's not like, oh, there's nothing to do, it's all inherent, well, we might as well just kick back and have a cup of coffee, it's all empty or it's all full or it's all Buddha nature or it's all whatever we might think. It's not about that kind of a response to it, obviously. Because to practice in a way that honours the inherent, the innate quality of awareness, of wakefulness, of consciousness. This requires a wholehearted application on our part. To practice non-distractedness, we could describe this process or this practice. We're not learning to be present, although that's fair enough, a way to say it. We're not learning to become present, we're learning to simply stop becoming absent. Stop participating in the process whereby we disconnect. To release the habit of distraction and disconnection. The way we absent ourselves from the imminence of life. When we do so, we're naturally here. We're already present. We have to do something else when we let go of distraction. Presence is what's there. Awareness is what's happening. We haven't made that happen. We've simply released the pattern that obscured it or took us away from it and in a way turned us away from it, we could say. So we don't seek to find awareness or to become present. We simply seek to abandon distractedness. And see where that leaves us. Of course, it's in some ways just another way to say or describe the same thing. And yet there's something important about this. Because when we orient towards it from a place of understanding that we're revealing what is the already here. That the way we relate to that, it's not something that we can so easily take hold of and identify with. And get caught in a process of efforting and struggle and success and failure and that whole cycle that goes on and on when we're caught in it. It's more like, well, what's possible here and now in the service of this? This wakefulness, this presence, this awareness, this consciousness, whatever word we might use, understanding it's pointing to a quality to a potentiality that can manifest and become more and more fully real in our life. Without trying to solidify or make it into something that we then attach to or grasp at. So it's like we're making something out of awareness. It's a verb, not a noun. Not making something out of presence or mindfulness or consciousness. Again, it's a verb. It's it's something that's happening it's not a existent entity or substance in some form that we can attach to. And so if we look at the sense of experiencing from this place of simple knowing, when we look at our life and each moment from this ground of awareness that knows That's what it does. It's recognized, not because it's something, because we can recognize the knowing that's taking place. 
because it's occurring in our own consciousness, or what we call our own consciousness. It's occurring in the moment we're inhabiting, when we're really here. In that experiencing, if we look, without trying to produce or create anything out of it, there is no boundary to it. There is no limitation. Experiencing encompasses everything that we know. Awareness encompasses all that we encounter. This is natural. This is simply what happens. And we can start to recognize that awareness, this capacity for knowing, this innate consciousness, has no boundary. There is no point at which it comes to an end and stops and does not go beyond this. Except in insofar as we disconnect from it. But then it's not that capacity of awareness which is limited. It's our limited capacity to stay present that we encounter and we work with, we seek to cultivate, to stay present. And the sense of limitation arises because we identify with our thoughts. We believe in the stories we create and we solidify as existent entities the objects of our experience through thinking about them. When we identify with and believe the content of our thoughts, the things that our thought, like I am me and I'm here and you are you and you're over there and this happened to me then all those concepts when we when we hold them with identification with unquestioning belief we find ourselves creating a structured position we have a sense of being fixed or located in a particular way. And that might give some degree of reassurance to that within us which wishes for security and certainty. But the cost is great for that appearance, and it's only an appearance, it's not an actual security or certainty that it offers, but for that appearance, we locate ourselves in a way that structures and limits reality. And we experience that sense of limitation as the, the deep inner frustration of feeling a potential that is not yet able to fully be manifest and lived in our life. Sometimes we find ourselves in Dharma practice, and probably for all of us this is true some of the time, because we're responding to where there's a sense of dissatisfaction or frustration or struggle, like dukkha because it's painful or hard in life. Sometimes that's what's moving us. Other times, and again, I think this is true for all of us at different times, so some might recognize one or the other. At other times, it's not because things are difficult or tough or you know, it's really miserable that we've been drawn to practice or continue practicing. It's because there's a sense of potential we have. There's a sense of possibility that we recognize. It's almost like we realize in some way Whatever we're trying to fit into in our life doesn't quite fit. It's too tight. You know, uh, Suzuki Roshi, 
once said rather beautifully, enlightenment is like taking off a tight shoe. Just like, ah. Like something that was too tight that we sort of squeezed ourselves into. Which is our identification with positions, with self. And then when we release the identity with that position, with that being fixed and certain and known, there's a sense of, ah, there's a relief. There's a certain just opening and a softening. We realize the tightness and the rigidity isn't inherent in the condition that we are. It's created out of our attempting to define and hold it and fix it. And the, the nature of the knowing of awareness is something that is unfettered. When we release our identity, our identification with our grasping onto thinking, when we let that go and we can see that a thought is just a thought, not a problem in itself, sometimes useful, sometimes useless, and simply apply accordingly whether we engage with them. When we aren't identified with the thinking, the sense of knowing has a radiance to it. Awareness has a radiance to it. For which the really most useful metaphor we can have is light. The radiant quality of life, that fi- of light that fills space so far as it's not obscured by something solid or fixed. And in that radiance, in that unlimited or non-limited capacity of knowing, it's not that we're without a sense of ground. It's in that sense of wanting to contract and hold a solid place to locate ourselves for safety, for security, for something of reliability. We, we kind of feel like if we abandon that, we're not going to have any ground. That's why we hold so tightly. And perhaps we've not felt like we had any ground all our life, so we really feel like we need to hold on. And yet when we, when we let go in this way, the sense of, of presence, of hereness that we can recognize as one of the, the qualities of awareness that's just here. When we're present, when we're mindful, when we're not distracted or reactive, there's just a sense of hereness. And it's located. It's located here. It's not locatable. You can't point your finger at it. You can't say it's this or it's that. So it's not locatable. From a distance, from outside it, you can't locate it. But it's located. From inside it, we know that it's here. It's this. And it isn't something that we've made happen. And it isn't something that we can ultimately lose. Although we can lose contact with it. When we get drawn into reactivity or identification. And in this quality that's tangible, this hereness or nowness, that is presence, that is located, but not locatable, 
it's not bound to anything. It's not locatable because it's not attached to anything. Any inner experience or any outer experience. So it's not bound and it's not graspable. We can't take hold of it. And yet we don't need to. In fact, it's very the revelation of it is directly through not taking hold of, through non-grasping. This is what is revealed. And so sometimes we'll hear the whole path described as the process of letting go. Non-grasping. And so the practice of non-distractedness is the practice of allowing the innate radiance of, of awareness, of, of presence, of conscious life to shine forth. To shine forth in our, in our life and in our world. And the other primary aspect of practice that relates to the other, what I'm calling primary quality of the awakened mind, is the practice of non-resistance. Non-resistance is the practice whereby we allow the innate quality of love to manifest more and more fully in our practice, in our lives and in our world. And what we see, just as we notice the tendency to disconnect, become distracted and lost in the mind, we also notice the tendency to resist experience, to react with unwillingness to what arises in our hearts at times to what we encounter in the world at times. And this shows itself as fear, as anger, as hatred, and many other related qualities, all of which express a resistance to the way things are, a non-acceptance, an unwillingness to allow or receive the truth of experience, the truth of life. And so, in learning to meet, in learning to open, to receive, to allow, to accept what comes to us, what arises within us, what arises around us, when we release this habit of negativity, this compulsion of negativity that says no to life, to experience that says, I don't want to encounter this, make it go away. When we release that, what we start to see, and as we release that, because obviously it's not just a sort of a one-off event and we've done it, great, now it's all over. But as we start to do that, what we notice and what we experience is that a sense of limitation in our heart, and I'm not meaning that you know, the physical organ that pumps blood around the body, although the way in which we sometimes experience the, the centre of our emotional processes as located in the centre of the chest is a, it has some 
has some relevance to it. But heart is more, rather than even that location, and certainly much more than the physical organ, heart, from the way I'm using it, is it's much more about that capacity for caring and for love. We notice that is limited in our life, and we can feel the limitation of it. If we feel that we are not able to meet ourselves with really open-heartedness, or meet others with open-heartedness, we can notice there's a profound limitation. There's a profound grief and pain. And equally in feeling that others haven't met us in that way. And yet they're all connected because when we're not met by others with open-heartedness, what happens when we're not conscious, when we're not aware, is our own heart tends to close. And the closing of our own heart, to protect ourselves, understandably it would seem, the closing of our own heart is again profoundly painful, profoundly limiting. And we identify, if we identify with that, we identify with a sense of limitation. But in the moment or in the life which we've given to our practice of freedom and liberation, and in that moment or in that life where we release ourselves from negativity, where we choose not to believe that this is the pathway we wish to follow that leads us to where our heart is most called. When we see that fear and anger and hatred, although as experiences it's totally okay that they arise for us, because they do, and there's reasons for that, and we need to be able to meet them and hold them with tenderness, with compassion for ourselves, with understanding for the circumstances in which they arose, which were inevitably difficult and challenging to us. So not judging or rejecting those experiences and yet understanding that enacting them or living our life defined by them is not what serves our deepest well-being and our greatest aspiration. And as we do that, as we can start to see and let them go simply by choosing not to enact, by choosing to, to turn towards an intention of wholesome, kind or gentle responsiveness to what we're encountering outside ourselves or equally in our own experience internally. What we may start to notice and what naturally can happen is that the sense of heart or of caring or of love being something that's limited starts to change. And we may start to feel the boundlessness of that caring of that loving capacity which is inherent which is innate which is already here it's not something we have to make it's our reactivity that's compressed it and blocked it off that says no I won't open my heart here it's too dangerous for me or I won't open my heart there that person's too bad and they need to be told that they're not lovable because of what they've done so I won't love them not realising that that is actually something that hurts us. And so, as we open ourselves, as we allow ourselves to open, as we recognise the places of resistance within our hearts, 
And we feel with compassion and tenderness the pain of those conditions. Out of caring for our own well-being, equally as for others, we want to let that go. We want, and we begin to be able to, to feel and to sense and to see life anew, to see everyone and everything, including ourselves, freshly. And it's like the natural sense is to wish to care for life, for others, for ourselves, to care deeply without making so many demands upon it that it conform to my preferences or expectations or judgments. Releasing resistance is to really allow the truth of how things are to take priority over our attachment to how we would like things to be. Seeing, as we can't help but seeing as we practice, that wanting them to be different doesn't change them and just adds to the suffering. When we stop resisting, when we really abandon resistance, it takes courage to do that because we don't know what's going to happen. We've invested so much in resisting the things that we don't want. We're not sure what's going to happen if we stop doing that. And it takes courage. It takes, again, a a greatness of heart. And yet, when we see life from this place of non-resistance, we start to see and feel and experience the whole thing very differently. And there's lots of ways we can speak about how that might be. One of the ways is how we might relate to our body. And we feel sometimes locked into or trapped in this organic biochemical system with its particular limitations and discomforts and its needs, how much effort we have to spend taking care of it, feeding it and cleaning it and giving it some rest and giving it some exercise and trying to get it to sit up straight and not get restless or agitated or fall asleep while we're meditating. This body, we've put a lot of demands on it. And yet, we might relate to it a little differently if we realise that with a sense of non-resistance to what is, if we look at this body, one of the things I notice when I look at my body from that place of more openness and not less demand is that, well, I call it my body, but... You know, I'm probably not the only one who has that view of it. Because there's a lot of organisms living in here, isn't there? We all know this. This body is full of organisms. It's a whole world system as far as the, uh, the smaller creatures are concerned. And, you know, upon many of them we're dependent. All the bacteria that live in our gut, that help us digest things. Do we have a sense of care and appreciation for their life? which is so intertwined with our own. And many of their lives will uh, continue when ours comes to an end. This organic tissue that we think of as mine will be theirs when we no longer have any use for it. At the moment, it's more of a sharing thing. I like to think of it as sort of like multi-occupancy uh, accommodation. 
And sometimes it's really hard, isn't it? For years I struggled with a fungal infection between my toes, athlete's foot, um, as we call it. And you know, I tried everything to get rid of it, and everything worked for a little while and then stops working. And I realized at some point it wasn't actually that it's that distressing. It's a little uncomfortable on occasion, a little sort of uh, unsociable in various contexts. But mostly it was the sort of embarrassment of the fact that something else was living on me or living off me that I really didn't like. It's like there's something else eating my tissue and it's gnawing away there inside my sock day in and day out. And I really wasn't okay with that. And yet at some point what happened was it's like, well, I might as well make friends with these guys because it looks like they're here for the duration. And it's really interesting how that changed the whole thing. I still treat them so that, you know, we, we maintain a balance. I don't kind of particularly want them to take over, you know, my knees, for instance. But down there at the toes, it's all right. A little bit of tea tree oil and, you know, maintain some kind of balance. But the relationship with them of, huh, okay. So imagine if this was a democracy. You know, if we all had one vote, every living organism inside this physical structure had one vote. I'd only get one, and I doubt if I'd get elected to be in charge. And it's kind of like, sure, that's a little bit, you know, wacky and silly in a certain sense. But another level, it's not wacky at all, is it? That's actually what's happening. Because at a bodily level, at that level of biological function, I'm not in charge. I'm really not in charge. And being okay with that. It's like allowing one's heart to be open to this body that's running under the imperative of many living beings, not just one. It's like the heart's opening around that is something very sweet. It's like, gosh, I was ordered to live in community. And here it is. Of course, we might have had a different idea. But uh, something about the sharedness of life. When we don't hold on to our resistance to the way things are, when we don't hold back on the natural kindness and love that is the expression of the innate, the innate quality of the awakened mind then we see how this breath is something shared and it makes sense that we're breathing in the same oxygen and that's really okay that the molecules of some of which that some some of the molecules I'm breathing in right now someone else breathed out just a few moments ago and some of these molecules get right into your cells before they get changed into something else and then get sent back out for someone else to draw right into their cells and it's like wow It's like there's something about how we're touched. When we're not resisting, when we're not looking at the world as something that we have to regulate, when we're not looking at our experience as something that I have to regulate in order to make it acceptable or tolerable or bearable, when we're not imagining that our capacity to receive life is more limited and our experience of it. That experience and that perception for most of us arises very early in life when our capacity is limited as infants, as children. 
and when the impact of life can be overwhelming and beyond our capacity to receive and to metabolize and to digest that. And so we come into our much greater adult capacity and maturity with a view that's a hangover from a very different time that says, actually, no, I can't. And I'm not going to allow myself to be touched by life because it will overwhelm me. I need to reorganize it. I need to control I need to pick and choose amongst those things that are okay and I'll let in and those things that are not okay that I will resist. And that had a value and a place for us in a certain phase of our lives. It's inevitable and necessary. But it is also limiting. And as we start to see that it's limiting and how limiting it is, then what we want to do is release out of compassion. We want to release our heart from that limitation. We may sense, again, the possibility of a boundless heart, a heart that is unbounded, is a heart that's released from our belief in its limitation, a heart that's released from our belief that we somehow have to filter life that we can't receive it pure, raw, unfiltered and just as it comes. Now that's not to say there isn't a place for saying no, a place for really challenging and addressing directly that which may be unwholesome and unskillful in the behaviour of others, whether individuals or groups of individuals and equally in our own patterns of behaviour and reactivity. Of course there's a place for saying, in a compassionate way, no, that leads to suffering. I do not wish to perpetuate this pattern, that habit, this perspective or way of viewing things. But that's not about resisting experience. That's about discerning what leads to well-being and happiness. And we still allow ourselves to be touched by the experience. To be... Touched, to be open to the touch of life as it comes to us, unconditionally. To allow our heart to resonate with that touch, in that touch, through that touch of life. Each moment it's happening, it's taking place. To what extent do we allow ourselves to really wholeheartedly resonate with that? To feel the touch of life, to respond to the touch of life without demanding, requiring that it would be different than it is. That requirement, that demand, that contraction, that sense of limitation, again, it creates the sense of boundedness, of limitedness. And as we let that go, as we begin to drop that, there is a quality that is beyond dimensionality expressed in the caring that we are in contact with. Beyond measurement, therefore beyond dimensionality, without a dimension, without a boundary, without a limit. 
All dimensions, all boundaries, all limits are the product of conceiving and believing in those conceptions. And when we're not bound in that constructed and limited view, or those constructed and limited views, something remarkable happens. And we see it in this world so many times in so many ways. If we look to see it, that is. If we are attuned to what's around us, we'll see many lives lived with an immense greatness of heart, with a courage and a compassion and a fearless forgiveness that is inspiring and in a certain way incomprehensible. It's like, wow, what human the human heart is capable of is ultimately beyond our conceiving. It's like there is courage in human beings to do to do things we might not imagine we could do. But yet we don't know until we're in that situation. I uh, have a grandmother who's Bengali from uh, Calcutta. And she was amongst the, uh, the Indian maidens and, and people who sat down in front of the, the guns of the, uh, the British colonial army in India, the uh, non-violent resistance of Gandhi. And a group of people who are willing to sit in front of soldiers with guns and choose not to act aggressively, but to be committed to staying there, even when some of them around them were shot. It's amazing that people could do this. People do this today as well. But hearing my grandmother's story when I first met her, I first travelled to India, quite touching to think, wow. She was younger when she when that happened to her than I was when she told me the story. I couldn't have imagined being able to do that. I'd be terrified. And yet something of the courage of the human heart allows people to take risks and do things. It was uh, something that changed the world. And it's not the only time that's happened. And there's endurance and fortitude and determination that we see in so many places and I don't mean to turn this into a story of my family history, but uh, I like to share this because it touches me even to remember it. My other grandmother is uh, Jewish from Romania, and uh, during the Holocaust she escaped from a transport train with my father, who was just two years old, being taken to a camp, and she jumped into the cesspit, into the public, well not the public, but into the latrine, and hid there for six hours with my father on her shoulders and got out once it was dark and went and washed herself in what was probably an icy river. And it just boggles me to think that someone could do that. And yet, there are so many stories like this in the world. It's like, wow, amazing.
what the human heart is capable of. And integrity, a willingness to make sacrifices for one's principles, for what one believes in and what one loves. A, uh, a practitioner I knew for many years, haven't seen her for the last few, but from America, who's um, come regularly to retreats I've taught over there and uh, elsewhere. And she was a, uh, a singer of quite some talent and also a very committed activist in the uh, the anti-smoking lobby. And she was trying to break into the music scene in New York, which if you know anything about it, and actually I don't, but what I'm told is it's a very hard scene to break into. And she was very talented, and at some point she was invited to a competition. To uh, It was a, sort of like a talent quest, and the winner of the competition was going to get a national tour and a CD that was going to be produced and you know marketed by one of the major labels. So it was like it was a, a potential doorway to, to get there. And uh, she entered this competition and uh, she won it. And after she won it, and they were starting to talk with her about the contracts that she was going to be signing, she became aware, which she hadn't before, that the sponsor of the competition was a major tobacco company. And she was in quite a difficult situation, as you could imagine. Here was the fulfilment of the dreams of her vocation offered to her. And yet it would have required her to turn her back on something she'd worked and campaigned for over many years, about the harmful effects of the tobacco industry. And she had the courage, and again, I was totally impressed by this, to say, no, I won't do that. Amazing. Just a human being like ourselves. And again, just you know, there's millions of stories like this. For the, I'm telling you stories that, you know, they're personal stories for me in the way I know the people involved. It kind of makes a difference. And how courageous, how beautiful that integrity. And uh, I'm also happy to say that within another few more years, she did actually start to uh, find the opportunities she was looking for in music, and has become quite established and. Uh, Successful, having a, yeah, that has come to her in another way. And the sense of how we go beyond or how we can somehow manifest in the world in a way that expresses a greatness, and I would say a boundlessness of heart, a courage and a, and a beauty. There's another story I'd like to speak to, and... This also when I often tell and find incredibly touching, but the story that I believe originates from Los Angeles. And it involves a young man, who was about 14 I believe, who living on the streets as he had for quite some time in a pretty rough and I would say desperate part of New York. He took a gun and shot another young boy. And he was brought to court over this killing, this murder. And it turned out in court that he had done this in order to gain entry to a gang, that this was what was required. To prove yourself, to get to be a member of the gang, you had to pretty much randomly kill someone. And his... Well, that's what he'd done. And... 
The mother of the boy who was much similar age as him, who he'd killed, was in court when the verdict was given, when sentence was passed. He was sent away for a number of years to a juvenile institution. And at the point where he was about to, he was just sentenced, he was about to leave, she looked at him from across the courtyard and she said in a loud, clear voice, I'm going to kill you. Then she left. About six months into his uh, prison sentence, she wrote him a letter. No one else had written him a letter. He didn't really have any friends or family to speak of. It was the first letter he got. And she just inquired how he was doing. And a little while later, she wrote another, and then she asked if she could come and visit. And he said yes, and so she did. And through the years of his uh, prison sentence, she visited him quite regularly. And at the end of it, she said, you know, do you have any work to go to or anywhere to live? And he said, no. So she uh, found somewhere he could work. And then just before he was released, when this had been organised for him, she came up to him and said, you know what I said in court? I meant it. I did not want the boy or that part of you that could just kill my son, my beautiful, precious son, not even knowing him. I did not want that to survive in you. And it seems to me that it's changed. That you are no longer that boy that could kill my son. It seems to me you have a good heart. And so there's an empty room in my house. Where my son used to live. If you'd like to come and live there, you're welcome. And so the boy went to live in the home of the mother of his victim. And eventually she effectively adopted him. She made him her son. And again, in terms of greatness of heart, the boundless capacity of love, that one could see so clearly it was not the boy, but the fear and the hatred and the desperate need for belonging that drove him to his tragic action, harmful action. And that what that needed in response above all else was love. That capacity to me speaks to the boundlessness of our heart, to the natural and innate caring and compassion that is there when reactivity drops away, that is not destroyed by even the most harsh conditions or the most harmful actions we may have undertaken. Because it is that very capacity of love within us that sees through the separation, that sees through the boundaries. And I would say it is the nature of love that what it sees, it sees as not other than itself. So the very nature of what love is, is the recognition that penetrates the illusion of separateness. 
That is what love is. The caring is there. The sense of separation is what needs to be released in order for that love and that caring to be unbounded, to be unlimited. And so this capacity of love together with the capacity or quality of awareness, this this presence that cares, we could say, this consciousness that is connected. This is the expression of the awakened heart, the awakened mind, the what's talked about sometimes as the Buddha nature. Not to confuse these qualities with that itself, but to see that they are the expression of it, the radiance of that, just as light is the radiance of the sun. And this radiance is all around us, but much of the time we are unaware of it. And in our unawareness of this radiance, we chase the objects revealed by it. We pursue the things that show up in it. And yet we can know it directly and live from and in and through it. Now the Buddha once said, this mind is luminous, radiant, brightly shining. It is clouded by obscurations that come from outside. For those who do not understand this, there is no cultivation of the mind. This mind is luminous, brightly shining, radiant. It is free from obscurations that come from outside the mind. We could equally say this heart mind, when we talk about mind, this heart mind is luminous, brightly shining, radiant. It is free from obscurations that come from outside the heart mind. For those that understand this, there is cultivation of the heart and mind. And so we practice non-distractedness. That is presence. And we practice non-resistance. That is love. So that we may more and more fully and deeply awaken to the radiance that is life. The radiance that is awake, innate and immediate. So let's take a few moments quietly together.